For me, April was another bumper month of games. In this month's instalment of What I Played, I cover seven games, including two brand new ones which I've reviewed, and even one unreleased one, all of which I covered for Entertainium. In Boomer Shooter Forgive Me Father, I confronted Eldritch Abominations, Cosmic Horrors, and sometimes a severe lack of ammunition. Biota, meanwhile, is a very entertaining 8-bit style side-scroller set on an asteroid plagued by ravenous mutants. Both of these games have largely flown under the radar, but I do recommend them. The four older games I tackled in April were the impressive remake Black Mesa, the underrated open-world shooter Rage 2, baffling Japanese adventure Yakuza 0, and the excellent sequel Rise of the Tomb Raider. First up, Forgive Me Father, from 2022, developed by Bite Barrel and published by 1C Entertainment. As I mentioned in my entertaining review, old-school shooters and the works of cult pulp fiction racist H.P. Lovecraft have been linked since at least as far back as 1996. Back then, id Software took heavy inspiration from the New England horror icon for various elements of Quake, most notably its final boss. Lovecraftian games are almost annoyingly common these days, and I normally give them the swerve, but I was pleasantly surprised by Forgive Me Father. Developed in Poland by Bite Barrel, the game represents a shift from them, from Mythbusters games to the Cthulhu mythos. Forgive Me Father is definitely an old-school or boomer shooter. The combination of its Lovecraftian setting and comic book aesthetic is a little awkward at times, but the result feels like an equal parts combination of Dusk, Thirteen and Blood. Honestly, if any of those games appeal to you, then you'll get a lot of entertainment from what Bite Barrel have summoned up. The level designs are quite basic, but what it lacks in this respect it makes up for with sheer variety. Few games since the 90s have had such an interesting mix of settings, and they change up with almost every level. When I played the game just before release, there were some significant balance problems, particularly to do with ammo supplies in the last third of the game, but these seem eminently fixable. Forgive Me Father isn't up there with the very best boomer shooters, but it's a very respectable effort, which deserves to be better known. I certainly recommend this one to fans of the genre, and this weird tale is available on Steam and GOG. Next up, Biota, from 2022, developed by Small Bros, published by Retrovibe. If you're looking for an example of what one person can accomplish in games development, you could do a lot worse than to play Biota. This 2D run-and-gun game with a retro 8-bit look is almost entirely the work of just one man, and it's an impressive achievement. One happy advantage of contributing to Entertainium is the chance to review games I've never heard of without any preamble or expectation, to just dive in. This is exactly what happened with Biota, and I very much enjoyed the six or so hours it took me to escape the doomed asteroid known as Frontier Horizon. What I like most about the game is that it both summons up the magic of 1980s run-and-gun games and adds a little extra spice and complexity. There are several playable characters, some available at the outset, and some needing to be rescued or, in the case of a robot, bought. There's a knack to choosing the correct character to deal with particular situations, and there are a handful of opportunities to upgrade the members of the infamous Gemini 2 squad and their abilities. Another real strength of the game is the chance to discover and use 54 different colour palettes. Old-school, four-colour games like this can become tiring on the eyes, so the chance to switch it up is very welcome, and I really appreciate how one of the palettes is called Clendathu. Biota is very much an under-the-radar game, so if it sounds appealing, I encourage you to check it out on Steam or GOG. Incidentally, publishers Retrovibe are putting out Retro FPS Project Warlock 2 in June into Early Access, which is looking to be shaping up nicely. 
Black Mesa from 2020, developed by and published by Crowbar Collective. In its own way, Black Mesa has to be one of the most extraordinary projects in video game history. After Valve declined to make the effort to update their magnum opus Half-Life, hundreds of fans spent an incredible 16 years doing it themselves. Eventually adopting the name Crowbar Collective, this group completed the final release in 2020. It not only rebuilds the earthbound levels from the original game on the Source engine, but also features radically remade and expanded versions of the Zen levels which closed out the original Half-Life. Black Mesa, as the final release is known, is a staggering piece of work. It proves the Crowbar Collective to be a hugely capable and talented bunch, even if their reimagined Zen levels are a decidedly mixed bag. Late Chapter Interloper, in particular, is just desperately boring. Most of the game, though, is brilliant, and this is due to a fusion of Valve's original genius and the new team's skill for making tweaks and improvements where necessary. What stands out most of all is how a virtue is made of linearity and simplicity. Half-Life, and now Black Mesa, benefit enormously from their entirely unbroken first-person perspective, and the absence of any cumbersome upgrade systems, menus, collectibles, and other distractions. Every style of game has become bloated with these systems in the last 10 years, and Black Mesa is a reminder of how a streamlined approach and clever scripting can create memorable moments one after another. The falling elevator in Office Complex, the jet fighter flyby in Surface Tension, the electrifying climax of Power Up. Half-Life has more indelible moments than any other game I've played, and Black Mesa recaptures their glory all over again. Several projects are underway to remake Opposing Force and Blue Shift, the underrated expansions made by Gearbox Software of Brothers in Arms fame. I sincerely hope they see the light of day. Rage 2 from 2019, developed by Avalanche Studios and id Software, published by Bethesda Softworks. Recently I wrote about Arthur C. Clarke's 1993 novel The Hammer of God, in which a group of astronauts attempt to prevent a cataclysmic asteroid impact on the Earth. In Rage 2, it's fair to say that no such effort was successful. As with the original 2011 game, this open-world shooter is set in a world devastated by the impact of the very real asteroid 99942 Apophis. Developed primarily by Swedish studio Avalanche, with the support of its software, Rage 2 was hardly a huge success. It received mixed reviews, often the death knell for any release, and quickly faded from the limelight after it came out in May 2019. Now it has the ignominy of being seen as one of Bethesda Softworks' recent failures alongside the likes of Fallout 76 from 2018. Conversely, Rage 2 isn't often mentioned in the same breath as Bethesda's real hits like Doom Eternal, but in some ways I think it should. The game actually plays like a bit of a precursor to id Software's enormous success in that it strongly encourages mobility and aggressiveness. I also think that Rage 2 is significantly more successful as an open-world shooter than most reviewers thought at the time. Crucially, you can play the game as much or as little as you like, and still get the chance to experience the full, albeit thin, story. I wrote quite extensively about Rage 2 recently, and my thoughts can also be found as episode 61 of this pod, but suffice it to say, I think this one is underrated, and definitely worth a look, especially if you picked it up for free in early 2021 from the Epic Games Store. Yakuza 0 from 2015, developed by Ryu Ga Gotoku Studio, and published by Sega. Before I get into this one, I can't even tell you how many times I had to try to record myself saying the developer's name properly, and it's probably still wrong. 
The Yakuza series is a big one, which these days sprawls across numerous sequels, remakes and spin-offs, all rooted in the original game which came out on the PS2 way back in 2005. For a decade this series was a hit for Sega in Japan, but was barely known at all in the West. The prevailing theory is that this had a lot to do with the cack-handed localization of the original game, which hobbled the series' prospects. All that changed with the release of Yakuza 0. This prequel, set at the end of 1988 and the beginning of 1989 in Tokyo and Osaka, transformed the profile of Sega's cash cow outside Japan. Since 2015, this series has performed well internationally and has contributed to the publisher's recovering fortunes. Here's the thing though, Yakuza 0 should not work. This action-adventure game is extremely long, stuffed to the gills with lengthy cutscenes, puffed up with drab minigames, and affords the player hardly any freedom at all in its two tiny, flat city settings. For these and a host of other reasons, Yakuza 0 has all the makings of an incredibly boring game. And yet, somehow, it mostly does work. The interlinked tales of gangster outsiders Kiryu Kazuma and Goro Majima are surprisingly compelling, thanks to a good script and a ton of quality voice performances. The game also benefits from its ability to transition frequently back and forth between stony serious crime drama and ludicrous comic farce. Much of the time spent actually playing is spent in combat, which is the polar opposite of something like Sifu. It's generally easy, crude, flashy, and arguably rewards button mashing over actually learning any of the systems. Yakuza 0 is such an odd prospect. I'd argue that it's better thought of as almost more like a TV series than a game due to the prevalence of cutscenes and the limited level of interactivity. I can't see myself wanting to play more games in the series, but it's definitely an interesting ride. Loop Mancer, not yet released, expected in 2022, developed by eBrain Studio, published by Eureka Studio. I've written about games on and off for many years now, and one thing I've only done on very rare occasions, is previews of upcoming games. Opportunities for these are relatively scarce unless you're on a big publication, and honestly I much prefer playing games that are finished to playing ones that aren't. For that reason, I almost never buy games in early access. However, for Entertainium I did take up the chance to play a preview build, or a demo really, of Loopmancer. With an unspecified release date for later in 2022, Loopmancer is essentially a 3D, side-scrolling, Chinese action game with a cyberpunk theme and time-looping mechanics. My hot take on what I played is that it's, well, fine. Time-loop games are a minor fad at the moment, and from what I saw, eBrain Studio haven't implemented this mechanic in a particularly interesting way. The graphics are quite impressive, but I couldn't shake the sense of restriction playing a 3D game from a locked 2D perspective and having such a limited range of movement. My sense is that Loopmancer is unlikely to set the world on fire when it does see the light of day, but the devs may yet find ways to unlock its potential. In any case, you can read my longer piece at Entertainium. And lastly for this month, Rise of the Tomb Raider from 2015, developed by Crystal Dynamics, published by Square Enix. Back in January, I revisited the 2013 Tomb Raider game and enjoyed it far more the second time round than I had done back in the day. In April, I finally got around to playing the middle entry in the recent trilogy, Rise of the Tomb Raider. This proved to be quite good timing, as when I was partway through, Crystal Dynamics announced that they were now developing a new Tomb Raider game to be built on Unreal Engine 5. Then it was announced that Crystal Dynamics and the Tomb Raider series has been sold off by Square Enix and bought up by Embracer Group. 
My hot take on this one is that I found Rise to be an excellent entry in this series. While Crystal Dynamics had boldly reimagined the Tomb Raider concept for the 2013 game, its sequel is inevitably a bit more conservative. The focus was clearly on expanding and refining the new formula rather than replacing anything. Rise has more of everything than its predecessor. More equipment types, more weapon options, more collectibles, a larger and more open world, and so on. The setting is an isolated region of Siberia, which proves to be the site of the lost city of Kitesh. When Lara Croft arrives there, she finds herself caught in the middle of a conflict between the ancient defenders of this secluded, mysterious region and the malevolent organisation Trinity, who want to plunder it. The game benefits a lot from its excellent graphics, and Crystal Dynamics clearly knew exactly what they were doing, but then they also reportedly had over $100 million to spend on their magnum opus. I plan to write at length about Rise, and look forward to completing the trilogy with Shadow of the Tomb Raider from 2018 at some point this year. That's about the long and the short of it for April. You might remember that I said I was going to cover Subnautica, but sadly I decided it really isn't my scene, and I have very little to say about it. Mysteriously enough, at the moment I have almost no idea what I'll be playing in May, so we'll just have to wait and see. In the meantime, please do check out the writing by myself and colleagues at entertainium.co, and if you like what I do, please consider supporting via Patreon. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can find more of my writing in text and audio form at my site andyjohnson.xyz. You can also find me on Twitter at andyjohnsonuk, and you can support me at patreon.com slash andyjohnson. Catch you next time.